Amen. Well, turn with me to the book of Nahum. The book of Nahum today will be looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Please follow along with me silently as I read the word of God aloud for us. This is the word of the Lord. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Please be seated. So, in our series examining uh, the fall of Jerusalem, we are examining primarily three minor prophets. We've come to the first of these, the book of Nahum today. And in this, the messenger of the Lord proclaims a prophecy, a burden, about Nineveh. This prophecy is clear. It is one of destruction and wrath for this city. Now, that might stick in your brain a little bit if you're familiar at all with the book of Jonah, perhaps the most well-known of the minor prophets, because this is very similar to the message that Jonah brought to Nineveh around a hundred years previous to this book. Now, we know that Jonah was reluctant, stubborn. We might have some other choice words for Jonah in his mission, but eventually, by God's providence, he arrives at Nineveh and proclaims the same thing. The wrath of the Lord is greatly kindled against the city. It will be destroyed. But the Ninevites repent. They cover themselves in sackcloth. They beseech the mercy of Yahweh. And he relents from destroying their city. And yet now, a hundred years later, we have a new burden, a new prophecy that is an old message. Nineveh will be destroyed for its sin and its wickedness. So that hopefully draws forth a question in our hearts. What happened? What happened in those hundred years? Was it something Jonah did? Right? Was it something the Ninevites did? It's not really recorded for us. We're wondering what happened to Nineveh in those hundred years. But the prophet starts by declaring a very important truth to us. That we cannot rightly understand ourselves or any other people or the nation or the world until we first look on the character and face of God. John Calvin said this famously quite well. It is evident that man never attains to true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look at himself. So that is what Nahum is doing here in the first six verses. If you want to understand what's happening in Nineveh, if you want to understand what's happening in the world with kingdoms rising and falling in wickedness, we have to first start by contemplating the character and the face of God. That's what's happening in these verses. And Nahum is bringing out four 
character attributes, four attributes of God in particular that he wants us, us to look at before we look at Nineveh. And make no mistake, this is a general call for Christians. As we look out onto the kingdoms of this world and struggle, we should first look at the character of God. And here are the four, four attributes that God wants us to consider. First, we will see that God is jealous. Second, we will see that God is wrathful. Third, we will see that God is vengeful. And last, we will see that God is all-powerful. Those aren't attributes that are readily popular in the world today, but rest assured, they weren't very popular in Nineveh either. But we do need to examine these. We need to understand God this way if we're going to make sense of anything else. God is jealous, he is wrathful, he is vengeful, and he is all-powerful. Verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Although, certainly, a lot of complaints have been raised against the wrath of God, against the vengeance of God, and against His power, His omnipotence, that God is jealous is perhaps an easy target for those who rage against Him. Maybe it's uh, adherents of other religions, maybe it's atheists, agnostics, scoffers, but in particular, this idea that God is jealous, they think, is an easy way to hang accusations on Him. What kind of God would call himself jealous, right? That's an easy target to hit. This is seen, I think, most uh, precisely in a pretty famous quote by Richard Dawkins. He's describing why he hates Yahweh. He says, Yahweh is jealous and proud of it, an unjust, forgiving, and petty control freak. And that is how he understands the jealousy of God. And so with each one of these attributes, we want to we start with a, a misunderstanding of the attributes. And Richard Dawkins did a, a good job for us in that. And you're not going to often hear me say Richard Dawkins and good job in short order. But in at least showing our hearts how we view the jealousy of God, he does a good job describing how humans think of God's jealousy, that it's petty. That it's petty. That's how we often think of God's jealousy. Pettiness is defined by having too much concern or involvement in small or trivial matters. And lest we think that perhaps us or broadly Christians don't struggle with this, there's a really easy question that we can look for. How often do we say in our hearts or out loud or do you hear other people say, does God really care about this? Does God really care about X or Y or Z? Now to be clear, right, there, there are some very small moments in which that's a helpful heuristic, Right? Does God care if we sing the doxology before or after the Lord's Supper? I, I do not believe that there is a direction from God if he cares if we sing the doxology before or after the Lord's Supper. So there might be things that God has given us the freedom to execute. But that's not what we have in view here. What we have in view is, does God really care what I do with my money? Does God really care what I do with my Sunday? Does God really care if I worship him? He's such a big God. He can't be that petty to care if I worship him consistently. God doesn't care what I do with my expendable income. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, that root drives much deeper than we're willing to admit. I've told this story before, but my first job was as a, a Christian school teacher and, and coach. And we would pray before and after every game. And every year, every year, bar none, some enterprising young man would tell me, God doesn't care about this game. Why are we praying? And maybe we've even said that in our hearts right? God doesn't care who wins the Super Bowl. That's the wrong way of thinking about it, right? 
Because what that's doing is that's suggesting, it's presupposing that these things are trivial in the first place. Because what we're really saying is that what human beings do is trivial, and that's dangerous. I grant you that God may not favor the Broncos over the Seahawks in the Super Bowl, but we know from Genesis to Revelation that God cares deeply about each and every human soul on that field. He cares deeply and immensely so that he calls himself again and again jealous. So the problem here, the thing that turns pettiness into just jealousy is the triviality of the topic at hand. Right? Is this really a trivial matter or does it have extreme and eternal importance? And we know that the lives we live are exactly that. Eternal. Not eternal, immortal, excuse me. We are immortal. We will live forever. How dare we say that the lives that we live that God has given us are trivial? That is rejecting his truth. And so we start not with God being petty, but with God being an advocate. I think that's a healthy way to think of God's jealousy. Think of it like this. This is in the day and age now, this is a good thing. We've recovered in a lot of ways the idea of advocacy. So if you're in a hospital, someone needs to be the advocate for the patient. And in fact, we even have like legal documents to support this idea, right? That someone needs to advocate for the sick person. And in the event that they are too sick or unwell to advocate for themselves, we have to find somebody else to advocate for them, right? But no one goes to the son caring for his coma-stricken, cancerous father. And as that son is advocating for his father's well-being, we never go, well, hold on a minute. You're being pretty jealous. We would never do that. Same thing for parents and their children, right? It's the job of a parent to advocate for their child. And so when a parent is seeking the well-being of their child, when they're trying to make sure they have enough food to eat and education received, we don't go, oh, come on, you're being really jealous. You have four kids, why does this one matter? We kind of, we revolt against that, and yet we're willing to call God petty when his jealousy is advocating for goodness and righteousness itself. That's what God's jealousy is, it's advocacy. And if God lays down his jealousy, his advocacy, then he is a coward because he is not standing up for what he knows to be right. And that's why when God introduces what's right in the Ten Commandments, this is what's right, this is what's good. I'm advocating for truth and justice and righteousness. How does it begin? But with I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Right? See the very beginning of the Ten Commandments. So he has to be advocate. He has to be a jealous God for truth. He also has to be a jealous God for his people. He has to be our advocate for us to have any hope. And that's why God repeats his own jealousy even as he's reconciling those very same Israelites back to himself, right? One of the more poignant pictures of the Bible. God's people are redeemed from Israel. Red Sea, miracles, fire, death of the firstborn. They receive God's Ten Commandments. He goes, I'm jealous for truth. I'm an advocate for righteousness. Here's the law. Here's what it means. And what do they immediately do while Moses is talking to God? They break like the whole first table of the law, right? They erect these golden calves. And if God is not jealous, he looks at that calf and goes, eh, it's just a little blasphemy. It's just going to send them to hell forever. It's not a big deal. I, it, it's just a little religious syncretism that will enslave their sons of daughters and bring rampant wickedness and sexual... It's no big deal. I grant you that's not a jealous God, but it's not a good God either. But even when God is bringing those rebellious Israelites back to himself, he 
breaks the golden tablets. When he's bringing them back to himself in Exodus 34, how does he describe himself again? I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. In this, God is jealous for you. He is jealous for his people, and that's our comfort. Even when we sin and we go away for the truth, our Father will not leave us. And that's why the jealousy of God is a tremendously good thing. It is righteous. So God's not petty. He's an advocate. Then Nahum says that God is wrathful. He's avenging and wrathful. He has wrath for his enemies. Wrath, wrath, wrath. Another idea that's not really popular. So if God's jealousy is basically his attitude towards truth, towards doctrine, he's an advocate for truth. He's an advocate for doctrine. Now, wrath is, in a sense, the heart of God. And that's unpopular. The heart of God is wrathful? Well, I don't like that at all. But that's what the word denotates. It can, it can be translated as rage. Also, interestingly, as heat. Also, interestingly, as venom. Like That's the potency of this word. It is a white-hot rage that, that resides in the very innermost being, right? That kind of white-hot rage. And we, we dislike that because we think that God's wrath is him being cruel, right? So if we mistranslate jealousy as pettiness, we mistranslate wrath as cruelty. That God is being unfair to these broken creatures and he is just ready at a moment's notice to drop an atomic bomb of his white-hot anger on people who just couldn't do any better, they don't know any better, and so it's cruel. But rather than viewing God's wrath as cruelty, we need to see that it is his absolute righteousness that is represented in his wrath. So I, I skipped something. I'm going to have more alliteration for you because I'm addicted to it. Rather than, when we say God is, is jealous, he's not petty, he is uncompromising. He's unwilling to compromise on what he knows to be right, and he's unwilling to compromise on his people. It's a good thing. In God's wrath, he is not cruel. He is unsullied. He can't stand the side of sin. We have to think about this from God's perspective because he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is goodness. He is the ultimate reality. If God is love, then he must not only be the opposite of wickedness, he must be opposed to wickedness. He must have anger for wickedness. If he is to be righteous, then he must hate the evil that is by definition destroying righteousness. That is the only way for him to be truly unsullied. Right? We do not have a God who is perfectly loving if we do not have a God that is perfectly wrathful against evil. They are two sides of the same coin. There are no parts there is no confusion. There is no contradiction. A God who is perfectly righteous and loving must perfectly hate and oppose wickedness and evil. There's no other way. So we say that God is an advocate when he's jealous for us. This is God the good physician. Because I want you to imagine you going to your oncologist, the doctor who studies cancer, and telling him that you were someone you loved has just been diagnosed out of the blue with a terrible form of cancer. And I want you to revolt in your heart correctly at the idea this doctor looks at you and says, eh, those are the shakes. There's an in and out down the street. Do you want to go grab a burger? That's not just a bad doctor. It's a wicked doctor. Right? And, and by the grace of God, most of the doctors we see, doctors who are cardiologists, 
aren't going to respond to heart disease with, ah, no big deal, who really cares? There's a lot of heart disease out there, bad luck, right? The, the oncologist doesn't view cancer as a bad roll of the dice. He hates it. That's what you want in your doctor, right? Someone who hates the disease more than you do. Someone who has struggled with this wickedness their entire life and has devoted their entire being to destroy it. That's who you want taking care of your cancer, right? Now the question that the Ninevites, and we have to ask ourselves is, what kind of God do we want when it comes to my sin? When it comes to wickedness? Is there any other kind of God who could be good, who doesn't hate it with everything that's within him? So God's jealousy is not pettiness, it's him being uncompromising. God's wrath is not cruelty, it's him being unsullied, unstained by sin. He's a good physician. We now go to the idea of vengeance. And a lot of times, these words are combined, and that can be okay. And even their close proximity here in repetition in Nahum is meant to really drive home at the very core of God's relationship with Nineveh is one of wrath and vengeance. But these are different words. Nakam is a verb. It is to take vengeance. So wrath is the heart of God against evil, and then vengeance is what God does to evil. Because he's jealous, he knows what's true, and because he's wrathful, he hates sin, vengeance is now what God does. He takes vengeance. And often we translate this vengeance as bloodthirstiness, that God delights in the destruction of the wicked, which the Bible says the opposite is true. God does not take delight in the destruction of the wicked, but when we don't want to accept the vengeful nature of God, we say, well, he's just bloodthirsty. He just wants to find any possible excuse for pain, for suffering, for punishment. God's vengefulness is not bloodthirstiness. It is his unyielding character in his fight against sin. And we just got to think for a moment of how dangerous and how blasphemous it is for us to blame a vengeful God for the pain of sin in our life rather than the sin itself. But that's what we do when we don't want to think of God as vengeance. Right? We think, oh, my, I love my sin. My sin's a lot of fun. So my sin's not to fault for all the pain and destruction in my life. It's the God who is taking vengeance upon my sin. But it's the exact opposite, isn't it? That in God taking vengeance upon his sin, he is w- waging his unyielding war against it. Right? That he will not allow that to stand. His repayment of wickedness is the very thing the Bible calls us to hope for when we face evil. That's what Deuteronomy 32 says when God says, vengeance belongs to me. Therefore, take hope because the Lord will repay. So rather than being a terror, that God takes vengeance is the very thing we're supposed to run to. It's what Psalm 41 says. They look at David's words when he has suffered tremendous injustice and wickedness at the hands of Saul who is supposed to be his adoptive father, who is supposed to love him and care for him. All Saul does, tyranny, wickedness, evil injustice, David's turns to the doctrine, the attribute of God that he turns to is that God is vengeful. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand will be stayed against you. So the very thing that we hate, because it shows us our sin, is actually the very thing we're supposed to hope in that God, the vengeful, will repay the sin. So it's not him being bloodthirsty, it's him being unyielding, and the illustration of this is in a judge. And this is one you've probably heard for if you've ever been in an evangelical church, but it's a good illustration, right? It is not a good, useful, even remotely righteous judge 
who looks at a robber that breaks in a house, steals everything the family has, shoots three members of that household, leading to one of them dying, flees down the street, gets in a car, wrecks it, takes out a nursery, and then runs off on foot. Eventually he's captured, he's brought before the judge, and the judge says, well, you know, he's poor. Like, you can't really, you know, there are a lot of circumstances that led to what happened. So what we just need to do is we need to cover up the sin. We need to, we need to forgive him. We would rightfully cry out in righteous anger that that is a wicked, wicked judge. Right? It's wicked to everyone involved, including the person caught in sin, that they should be told that their sin is acceptable. Right? And so if God is to be a good God, if he is to be a just judge, then he must be vengeful. He must repay the wickedness that's set up against goodness, righteousness, and love itself. The last attribute, and the one that has the longest amount of focus here in Nahum is God's omnipotence, his all-powerful nature. So we see all of these, the first three attributes repeated in verse 3. Slow to anger, great in power. So he's jealous, he's slow to anger, he cares what he cares about. But he's jealous for his people, he's patient. He's great in power, his wrath burns white hot. But it says he will in no way clear the guilty. He's vengeful, he's just. And then there is a long section of explanation of how the God is all-powerful. How God is all-powerful. He's like a whirlwind in a storm. This is a blessing of being in Arizona, and, and there are many. But one of them is that we know what a powerful dust storm is like, right? Born and raised in Minnesota, you might be saying, well, I don't know a big dust storm. But we know that these kind of storms can knock cars off the street. And that's the kind of storm that's in view here in the ancient Near East, right? Powerful, wicked storms that can pass through an area and kill people just by the power of their wind and the danger of the thing that's being whipped around. We've seen those, right, come through the city. And so at once, the omnipotence of God is awe-inspiring, right? It is overwhelming in its power. But at the same time, the omnipotence of God is personal. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. So this is a message to the Israelites. Look at the wrath of God. He will split the sea and then use it to devour Pharaoh and the other wicked people. This is a personal omnipotence. Remember what you've seen of his power. It's also now personal to the Ninevites. It says all the rivers will dry up. Well, Nineveh is a city that depended on rivers to bring its water. It's not by any lake. There's no deep well. It needs those rivers. And so God is speaking to both the Israelites and the Ninevites. My omnipotence is awe-inspiring and huge. It's a mighty storm. But it's also coming after you in particular. Right? It's not some deist, clockwork-making God who is unconcerned in his omnipotence. He's saying, my omnipotence is so powerful, it will come after the very things that you've seen and that you depend in lying. He names specific places that they know these things will be destroyed. And then he picks the, the most powerful things in the world, mountains and stones. And he says, so white hot is my wrath that it will melt stones themselves. Right? And we're going back to that all-inspiring picture of the omnipotence of God. So what's our misunderstanding of that, of that character attribute? It's going to sound silly, right? We think of God's jealousy, we call it pettiness, right? We think of God's wrath, we call it cruelty. We think of vengeance, we call it bloodthirstiness. How do we misunderstand the omnipotence of God? Really simply, we don't think that he is. And that's why Nahum and so much of the Bible spend so much time stressing to you the almighty power of God. 
And in fact, that's often the way. It's the way it's put here in Nahum and in Revelation. That is, God the Almighty. That is his title. That is his character. He is the Almighty. That's how essential to his being it is, that he is omnipotent. And it's so easy for us to just reject that as a fundamental truth. Maybe best case scenario, we accept that God is omnipotent, but not when and where I want him to be. And that's when it gets really frustrating. All right, God, I accept that you can do whatever you want, that nothing, you can burn stones, but then why is there this problem in my life? Why is there in Nineveh? Why is there in Assyria? Why is there a Jonah? And so maybe we accept the sovereignty of God, but we don't accept that it's good. But rather than rejecting that God's omnipotence is either real or helpful to us, we have to see that God in his all-powerful nature, in his omnipotence, it is to display that he is unrivaled. And if God were to surrender his all-powerful control of the cosmos to your personal will and desires, then he has a rival. And it's you. It's your heart. And if God would be just and righteous... Right? If he would be uncompromising and unyielding and unsullied, then the worst thing he can do is to take his omnipotence and put it in the hands of a rival even when it's our own hearts. We can only ever grab on to the omnipotence of God when we understand it has to be controlled by his will because he's the only one who's righteous to yield it. And it's good. It is so good for us that God doesn't allow rivals in Nineveh, in Phoenix, in our hearts, or anywhere else. It is an absolute necessity that God doesn't allow rivals. I want us to now turn to the book of Jonah as God is rejecting rivals. And in particular, we're going to see God rebuking the people of Nineveh for being his rival. We're going to start in verse 6. The word, now this is the same message, right? Nineveh is going to be destroyed. This word reaches the king of Nineveh, Jonah chapter 3, verse 6. He removed his robe, he covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them cry out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from violence that is in his hands, and who knows, God may turn and relent. All of the pictures of repentance here are Near Eastern and even modern pictures of surrender, of humiliation. Cover yourself in sackcloth. Throw away all of your goods. Stop doing everything that you're doing because we have been conquered by Yahweh. He is the victorious king. Don't even drink water without his permission. That's what repentance looks like for them because finally the king and the people of Nineveh have realized that God will not have rivals. That's the fundamental message of this repentance. You have set yourself up against God. Either accept that he is jealous, wrathful, vengeful, all-powerful, unrivaled, and good, or perish. And that's why this picture of surrender is their picture of repentance. That's the only way it can look when we rightly know that God is gone. The illustration of this is a shepherd. Now, you're very familiar with the idea of God as a shepherd. We sang about it today. And it's certainly true that, you know, a, a shepherd cares for a sheep. We should be clear, though, that 
shepherd is, is almost like Old Testament byword for king. Right across the ancient Near East, every king was called a shepherd. That's just because of how bedded in that analogy was. Right? That, that a king, all kings are shepherds, because like a shepherd over his sheep, the king has that level of both control and responsibility over his people. So when we say shepherd, it needs to think of kingly language that God is a shepherd. Right? And we need to think of how wicked it would be for a good king or even a good shepherd to allow rivals. We've all chosen this king. He chose us first, right? Ephesians 1 and 2, Romans 9. But we've all chosen this king by the grace of God. He's the only one we trust. He's the only one who can save us. He's the only one who's done right by us every day of our life. His judgments are pure. His ways are just. His word brings life. It redeems our marriages and our families. It brings me to the eternal throne of God. This is a good king. But if that king turns around and lets someone else lead us, he is now a wicked king. If the shepherd in the valley sees some wolves coming in and says, well, I bet those wolves are hungry, I'm not going to destroy them. It's a bad shepherd. If the shepherd sees enemy brigands and thieves coming to steal sheep and says, well, they must need them more than we do and lets them get away with it, it's a bad shepherd. And so God's all-powerful destruction of his enemies is him being an unrivaled and good king. Because in the words of Peter, he alone has the words of eternal life. Let's end then. Where is Jonah now? Having contemplated the face of God, what does that reveal to us about Nineveh? Nahum's burden against Nineveh is precisely because of the book of Jonah. In Jonah chapter 3, by the unfathomable grace and mercy of God, this wicked city was in a prophet. And they were told of hope. They were presented an uncompromising, unyield, unsullied, and unrivaled Yahweh that might save them. And for but a moment they repented. But now, a hundred years later, having tasted and seen that this God is jealous, vengeful, wrathful, all-powerful, and that's the best possible news for him, they have specifically rejected his character. They have rejected the very message Jonah brought them, and that's why now destruction comes to them with such fury and such righteousness. And this will be a book we get to, but think of how poignant the destruction of Nineveh is described in Zephaniah chapter 2-5. This is the exultant city that lived in security. Here's why the wrath of God is coming to them. Zephaniah 2-15. Because she said in her heart, I am. It's an obvious reference to the name of God from Exodus. Nineveh is being destroyed because having come up against and being given the hope of forgiveness by this jealous, wrathful, vengeful, holy God, they looked and they decided, God is not, I am. They are God. And when you set yourself up against that God, you are rejecting everything we just talked about. The truth that he is jealous for, right? The righteousness that his wrath protects the justice that his vengeance proceeds, his very power and authority as God, as your creator, as your savior, when you say, I am God and he is not I am, you have rejected all of those in the most fundamentally thorough way possible. That's where Jonah is in Nahum. Nineveh has now completely and totally rejected the message of salvation. So how do we understand this? The easiest application 
is for those who have not repented and believed. God is jealous for truth. He will not allow your sin to go unabated. He will not allow you to live in lies and in sin. God is wrathful against the sin in your heart that's destroying you and destroying this world. He is vengeful. He will not forget wickedness and evil. It will be punished, and you will be punished with it. That's the message of Nahum to Nineveh and to each and every human being right now that does not believe. Repent and flee from the wrath of the Lord, because it is sure, it is good, and it is coming. But now to the Christian, who I imagine is most, if not all of us. A couple thoughts. Internally, the character of God is an inseparable part of the gospel. If we reject that God is jealous and wrathful and vengeful and all-powerful, then quite simply we are rejecting the gospel in our hearts. The character of God is what brings the very gospel to us. Each one of these attributes are necessary for us to have a gospel. For God to be jealous for truth and for his worshipers is the fountain of the covenant of redemption. It's why God decided to save his people. Because he is jealous for his truth, his right, and then by extension, his people. That God is wrath and will destroy sin is both our fear and our hope. I would be destroyed in my sin, but that God poured out his wrath on his own son. Not as a hand wave or an ignorance of sin, but because he's vengeful, my sins were paid for, not forgotten paid for on that cross. We see now how these attributes are essential parts of the gospel. And so that's why it's good for us as Christians, we're reading Nahum and thinking, well, I don't live in Nineveh, I'm not a Ninevite. You are someone for whom these character attributes of God are an absolute necessity. We must increasingly know him as jealous and wrathful and vengeful and omnipotent if we want to know him rightly. When we look out at the world around us, the call here is to not be a Ninevite. To not think that wealth or power or momentary authority can actually raise someone up as an I am against God. And I think this comes out in our hearts when we despair about the world around us. When we see the results or cultural trends or actions that we don't like, or even that we know are wicked, like David did with Saul. These are wicked things you're doing, and they're ruining my life. But when we give in to despair, it is because we are not fundamentally believing that our jealous, wrathful, and vengeful God will stand right at the end. That He will repay. That these nations will be torn down and that He will do marvelous things in our sight. So our despair is not an accurate response to how bad the world is. If it's Scottsdale, if it's America, if it's Nineveh. It's a failure to see a holy God in His jealousy and His wrath and His vengeance. But then when we relate to the world, and here's something I never thought I'd say in a sermon before. Be like Jonah. Now last week, the sermon was, don't be like Jonah. Look at Manasseh. Look at this wicked king. He repented. We think of the wicked, awful people in our life. Don't be a Jonah. That's how the Bible's always don't be or be a Daniel. But be full of the grace and mercy that comes to wicked sinners like Manasseh. Realize that we were once Manasseh, and then every Manasseh in our lives can repent and believe and we said last week that the first response to the kings of this world, no matter what else is going on, is the message of repent and believe. To Manasseh, to Mao Zedong, to Xi Jinping, whoever it is, repent and believe. But at the very last, Jonah did tell one thing to Nineveh. What's the message that's given to Nineveh? 
in Jonah chapter 3. In 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's all that's recorded of his message. So make no mistake, grace is the tip of the spear that, that is the gospel. And it's grace that pierces the stony heart. The Ninevites can only repent because they believe, like the prodigal son, that even though they are covered in sin, there is still mercy yet for them in their father's house. Who knows, God may turn and relent and have mercy on us. So it is the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ, that's the tip of the spear. But it is the character of God, perhaps particularly revealed in his law, that is the edge of the blade, that is meant to cut through our souls and reveal for us who we really are and who he really is. And if we do not know who we really are and who really is, then there is no gospel. And so in this one thing, we are to be faithful like Jonah. We are to tell them the character of God, even if they hate it, even if they've decided that their God and God is not, even if the idea that God is jealous and vengeful and wrathful and omnipotent is hateful to them, we must tell them that. Because it is only when the character of God is revealed to them that they can respond to his offers of mercy and grace. In the small way, as we're talking about God's kingdom coming and our faithfulness under the generations, we have to be faithful to present the character of God. It is the only hope of mankind that our God is jealous and wrathful and vengeful. He will destroy sin. He will save his people. We need them to hear this, and we need to hear it ourselves so we might see the fullness of his grace in the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is no one like you in heaven or in earth, above the earth or below it. There is no one like you. Slow to anger, steadfast in love, always remembering and punishing wicked and injustice, and yet offering mercy and forgiveness to those who call upon your name. Father, let us not fall captive to ignoring the character of God or thinking that these ideas are too big, too unpopular, or not meaningful enough for our lives. But Father, let us see in your character, in your jealousy, let us see you as a righteous advocate for truth and for your people. In your wrath, let us see you as holy, 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 and let us see ourselves as not, not, not. And that our hope can only be in a God who truly hates sin. In your vengeance, let us trust in a God who will not you lose, who is unyielding in his war against wickedness and sin and the devil. And Father, in your omnipotence, let us find rest, that we can rest secure, and that anyone who can be saved because of your power, if they but know you and call upon you. Father, give us the strength to see your character as our hope and as our truth and guide us in, in all the days of our life. 